Before we dig into our text this morning, uh, I want to do a brief recap, especially for those of you who are new or tuning in for the first time during this current teaching series. Uh, it'd be helpful for you to know that we are currently working our way through the great book of First of Peter. First uh, Peter right here is one of the last books of the Bible. Uh, the author, as you might have guessed, is a man by the name of Peter. He's one of the OG disciples, one of the original apostles, one of the hand-picked followers of Jesus, the original 12. Uh, and Peter is writing a letter at this point. First Peter is a letter that he wrote later in his life. So he's a seasoned pastor after many decades of serving churches. He's writing a letter to a group of Christians and churches all dispersed throughout what we would consider uh, modern day Turkey, that region. And so all throughout that region, Peter uh, is writing this, this uh, letter to Christians dispersed and scattered throughout that region. And his purpose for writing to them is to encourage them to encourage them to sort of hold fast to their Christian hope, especially in the face of suffering and of trials uh, and of persecution. Basically, he's answering the question, what does it look like to live out our faith when our faith makes us kind of feel like an outsider or like a stranger uh, in the land that we live in? Uh, and to answer the question, how can we also then share that hope so that others can benefit from it too? And so I think this is a really timely uh, 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 sort of book for us to study through in the cultural, mo cultural moment that we currently find ourselves in as Christians. And so uh, the title for our sermon series, uh, we've been calling it R uh, Resilient Hope. In a restless world. If we want to sort of sum up the mega theme of the book of First Peter, he's writing to encourage them to have resilient hope in a restless world. And uh, we've gone through 12 verses so far in First Peter. And this morning, we're going to carry on in verses 13 through 16. And we're going to look at the topic of uh, holiness. The great topic of holiness and the idea here is that, look, if we want to operate with resilient hope, if we want to live our lives with resilient hope, then we have to be growing in spiritual maturity. We need to be marked by holiness. And today we're going to unpack this topic of holiness, which admittedly is a topic that is often sort of brushed off by many as, as something that is outdated or passe or maybe too churchy and unpopular. But I want us to see that this topic of holiness, when we look at it biblically, we actually see it's quite provocative and revolutionary and ultimately life-giving. Uh, for a follower of Jesus, this topic of holiness. Now, as we've already seen, Peter, uh, in the first 12 verses, started his letter of encouragement uh, in the most appropriate place, which is just expounding upon the good news of the gospel. The first 12 verses, he very beautifully and very colorfully describes the shared hope of our salvation. And then in verse 13, which is where, at the, where, where we're at this morning, he begins with the word, therefore which marks a sort of shift 
And if you've grown up in the church at all, you know that uh, uh, anytime you're reading the Bible and you see that word, therefore, you're supposed to ask the question, what is that therefore, therefore? And so that word therefore is clearly hearkening back to uh, those 12 previous verses that we've gone over so far. Uh, where he expounded upon the gospel. And so in verse 13, when he says, therefore, it's as, almost as though he's saying, look, now that I've explained this beautiful, wonderful message of grace to you, here's how you live in light of that message of grace. Because the truth is, the common truth that many of us know, is that when we start to feel the pressures of a fallen world, because we're discouraged, because we're feeling beat up or bogged down or tired or feeling the pressure from things or people coming in from the outside, uh, then we can actually start to lose sight of our hope. We start to lose sight of uh, Christ's work in us and around us. And that's when we actually start to fall into sin or into holy living. And so Peter, now he starts to uh, encourage them in this idea, in this life of holiness. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So before we actually dig into uh, that topic of holiness, I would just love to pray for us. Uh, Ask the Lord to bless our time in his word this morning. So would you pray with me? Uh, Father God, I thank you so much for your word for every single man, woman, and child on the other side of this uh, live stream this morning. And I pray, God, that you would use your word to just feed our souls, to challenge us to where we need to be uh, challenged, to, to tweak us where we need to be uh, tweaked, to tender, tenderize us and soften our hearts where it needs to be softened. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters at King's Cross Church, may we be a, uh, a church that is marked by holiness for your glory and for the good of others. We also uh, pray, God, uh, for um, all the firefighters and first responders uh, that are uh, working uh, tirelessly without sleep, laboring hard to uh, protect our state, uh, to protect our homes. Would you, Lord, uh, just um, bless them, um, strengthen them, and protect them uh, as they seek to protect us? It's in Christ's name I pray this morning. Amen. So uh, before we dig into holiness, it'd be really helpful for us to define the word holy. What does it mean when we use the word holy or talk about holiness? Now, when you think of the word holy, what usually comes to mind? What comes to mind when you think of the word holy? We usually associate it with being like a morally good person, right? Like if you were to call someone, if you were to say, hey, that's that's a holy person, that would be a way of saying that is a really morally good person. And the idea is that God is, uh, or that God is holy because he is morally perfect. And so therefore we should be holy just like he is. And that is absolutely true. That is good. And that is true, but that is still just a small fraction of what it means to be holy. 
When we look at the scriptures, we see that the Bible's full teaching on holiness certainly includes that, but it's so much bigger than that, so much more uh, beautiful than that, uh, more encompassing than that. It's this idea that God is the wonderful creator and that we are his needy creation. He is creator and all else is creation. We talked about this a little bit last week about how God is not only the best character in the story, he is the author of the story. All of the things that we long for, all of the things that shape our world and that, that make things right, the things that we, uh, we seek after like truth, uh, goodness, uh, love, justice, beauty, all of those things flow from who he is. They flow from his creative being. It's not just that he possesses these qualities and these virtues. It's that he's the source of all of them. Or the way philosophers describe this, he is ontologically different. He's just a whole other category in and of himself. That's what makes him totally unique as the creator. All else is creation. He's totally unique. And in a very biblical sense, that is the deeper meaning of what it means to be holy. To be holy means to be unique and to be set apart. Now, I think a helpful metaphor for us to understand this expansive view uh, of biblical holiness would be to think about the sun, right? Just think about the sun sitting at the center of our solar system. We could say that the sun is, uh, in a very real sense, unique, right? We can consider the sun unique uh, in that its, its virtues are and its qualities are unique. It's powerful. Uh, in, in, in some sense, because it provides light uh, to, to all the planets and, and to our planet, we could, there's a sense in which we could say that it's the source of life and that the sun's light and uh, if, if we want to say the sun's holiness sort of spreads out from uh, where that central location. And, and it's such that the area near the sun, like the closer you get to the sun, the more dangerous that holiness gets. The closer and nearer you get to the sun, the more dangerous it is. And if you get too close, you will be utterly destroyed. You'll be obliterated. Now consider this. That is how God's holiness works. That is how God's holiness works. If you are impure, then it is dangerous for you to be in the near presence of God. It's not because he's mean or vindictive, but it's because he is so good. He is so pure and so beautiful and everything about him is just so right. And everything about us is just so not. And so uh, if you're impure, if you're marked by any type of unholiness, then the closer you get to his presence, the more dangerous it becomes. And so therefore, the call for us to be holy is really a call for us to let the light of Christ transform the darkness in us and to shine through us so that not only we can we bring glory to God and be a blessing to others, but we can also now find safety in his holiness. 
You see, a life of sin and a life of unholiness is ultimately a rejection of all that is good and true and beautiful and right about God and his creation. That's really what unholiness is. A life of sin and unholiness is just a rejection of all those wonderful things. And it's, it, and it's, it's in a very real sense, the most dehumanizing thing that we can participate in. Because when we sin, we are rejecting the life that we were meant to live. We're marking ourselves with impurities and working against the glory of God and his good design for us and for all creation. And so it's helpful for us to have this expansive view of God's holiness. As we work our way through this text, I want you uh, to consider this view of holiness, all right? So let's get into our text now, beginning in verse 13. Here's point number one. That the hope that we talked about in, those, in our first 12 verses in this series, the hope we talked about actually prepares us for holiness. It prepares us, hope prepares us for a life of holiness. Read verse 13 with me. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that first phrase he uses there in verse 13, prepare your minds for action, is a vivid term that literally means gird up the loins of your mind. Now it'd be helpful for you to understand that that phrase gird up the loins uh, has to do uh, with with uh, the uh, the clo- the clothing materials uh, that they used to, to wear in in the uh, in the first century. Back then, everyone wore a bit like long flowy clothes. It didn't matter if you were a dude or a gal. Uh, everyone had long flowing clothes, and so if you had to get ready for action. Like if you were preparing for battle, uh, if you had to run down a hill or up a hill, if you had to do any kind of labor that would require a lot of movement, especially with your legs, what you would do is you would gird up your loins. You would grab the bottom of your of your garments. You would pull them up uh, and secure them somehow uh, uh, with, with your hand or um, with some other garment uh, to tie around it so that you could start like... Uh, moving with activity. It's 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 like today's equivalent of, of saying, uh, let's roll up the sleeves of your mind, right? If you were rolling, if you had long sleeves and you were rolling up uh, your sleeves, then you know like, oh, it's, it's, it's time to get dirty, right? It's time to get involved. It's time for action. Probably like my favorite picture of this is from uh, Mission Impossible uh, Fallout. Uh, I'm going to try and find the clip of this for you guys. But there's this fight scene um, where Ethan Hawke and uh, this guy, uh, I forget his name, his character's name, but he's played by Henry uh, Cavill. Uh, and Henry, Henry Cavill, uh, is like on one end uh, of of the fight, and the two other guys are like fighting in the corner. And he gets up, he takes off his jacket, and he pumps his arm. He goes boom, boom, uh, almost like he's like reloading his arm guns. I don't know what that was, but he's about to get in there. He's about. Uh, to get dirty and get involved in this fight. And that's the picture here that we have when Peter says, look, 
prepare your minds for action. It's a very vivid, uh, very action-packed word or phrase there, rather, in the original Greek. Uh, what he's what he's saying here is 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 you need to prepare yourself for action, and the way that you do that is you ready your mind. That's how you prepare. You prepare by readying your mind by actively learning. You want to get ready for Christian living, for Christian holiness, for Christian action. And man, you need to ready your mind with the hope of the gospel. Go back to it, return to it. Consider it, study it. And he continues on in verse 13 and calls us to be sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? It means to be like clear-headed, to be clear-headed, to be not lazy, uh, to be not easily distracted, uh, to be always spiritually alert. He's not just talking about drunkenness when he says sober-minded. He's talking about uh, you know, don't be under the influence or under the sway of anything or anyone who would inhibit your ability to be able to act uh, uh, for the glory of God and for the good of others in any given moment. What he's saying is that your hope in Jesus and living that out is not something that you can be nonchalant about. It's not something that you can just be assume is a part of you. He's talking about taking charge of your priorities, having a discipline of heart and of mind and of will. You see, some of us would have our hearts easily swayed by one thing or the other, but Peter says, no, don't let that happen. Don't, don't, don't be under the influence of anything. You got to be sober minded. Now, there's a danger here where if all you're doing is preparing your mind for action and staying sober minded, that you start to place your hope on those things, then you can either get puffed up and proud by how great you're doing, or you can feel really burdened and bogged down by how tiring it can be. And that's why Peter adds this third exhortation in verse 13, where he says, set your hope fully on the grace. Peter's teaching us to always remember grace, Always remember grace. All of your preparing your mind for action, your sober mind, it all needs to flow from having your hope fully on grace, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You see, he's teaching that hoping in God isn't something that we can just passively drift into, right? Because that's what happens to a lot of us. It's like we get saved uh, 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 and, and, and we, we're all of a sudden like passionate about the gospel. We're really excited about it. Like when I became a Christian in college, right? Like I was so pumped on the gospel, but then we inadvertently kind of start to, uh, move on from the gospel of grace and we get involved in churchy stuff. And then we start to learn theology or, or whatever, and, and just plug into community. Uh, and then eventually the Christian life starts to become about other things other than grace, Right? It becomes more associated with what we do than with who we are. And Peter says, no, don't let that happen. Right? You can't passively drift into uh, uh, being a grace-centered person. It's something you got to fight for. It's something you need to be alert about. It's something you need to set your hope, actively set your hope fully on. 
We must engage our minds with the reality of the grace, favor, and reward that is ours in Jesus Christ. Be disciplined in our thinking in that way. Look at the whole phrase. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that we b- will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he's talking about when he says the revelation of Jesus Christ is he's pointing forward to a day. The day that we all long for, the second coming of Jesus. There's a day that is coming where we will see Jesus face to face. Do you look forward to that day? Does that day fuel your hope? Do you set your hope on things around you, on the circumstances around you, or on the reality of the fact that you belong to Jesus and that you'll one day again see him face to face. He says, set your hope fully on this grace in Jesus. And I want you to notice the extent to which we place our hope there. He says to fully place our hope on Jesus, to fully place our hope on the grace that is found in Jesus alone. Because our tendency, if we're honest, If we're going to shoot straight this morning, our tendency is that we don't fully place our hope there. We partially place our hope there. We put a little hope in Jesus, but then we also put a little hope in our work or vocation, a little hope in our spouse or a girlfriend or boyfriend, a little hope in our possessions or our health, our wealth, our reputation, our circumstances. But all of those things are temporary hopes. They're, they're really, in the end, dying hopes that won't ultimately fulfill or satisfy or last in the end. But the hope we have in Jesus, it's called a living hope. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago. Living hope. That living hope is so much more satisfying than any of these other dying hopes. If we place our hope and anywhere other than Jesus, then then that just leads to a spiritual dryness and a spiritual dullness um, uh, that will just uh, leave us ultimately unsatisfied. And that is how our resilient hope prepares us for holiness. All right, it prepares us by um, by preparing our minds, uh, by keeping us sober-minded, uh, and by helping us to. Seek grace to fully seek grace in Jesus and the gospel. Now, number two, I want you to see how our hope actually also shapes our holiness. It shapes our holiness. Read verse uh, 14 with me. Now, he, here he talks about our worship being holy. Verse 14 As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He's talking about us having a holy worship. And the truth is that that every single one of us worships. We're all worshipers. That's what he talks about when he says the passions of your former ignorance. And look, right there in that verse, there's an important principle here uh, that cannot be overlooked. It's that everyone worships. Now, in one sense, worship is something that Christians uniquely do. But it's also something that non-Christians do. It's something that spiritual and non-spiritual people do, religious and irreligious. Uh, and so the helpful way to explain this is that the thing that motivates us 
whatever it is that motivates you or drives you that where you find your significance or the very center of your being and identity where your deepest desires and longings and hopes live like those those are the things that determine our sense of identity our sense of value and our sense of being and whatever thing that is for for you whatever thing that is for any given person that is the thing that is worshiped that's the thing that we worship and so we're all worshipers because we're all made to worship or delight in in in, in something David Foster Wallace, the postmodern novelist, uh, gave this famous speech once. And in, in, in that speech, uh, he said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. And he's saying this as a skeptic himself. But he says, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the idea here is that whatever it is that you worship, that will determine how you live your life and how you feel at any given moment. And so if you worship money or things in possession, then you'll always feel like you never have enough. If you worship body image and beauty, then you'll always feel like you're ugly or not pretty enough. If you worship power, you'll always try to control others. Like you'll never have enough Power. If you worship uh, the affirmation and the applause of, of, of people, then you'll give into the, their desires and their wants and the pressure of others, even if that pulls you away from Christ. Look, we all worship because we are all made to worship. As one person said, we all have a God-shaped hole that we're constantly trying to fill. But here, Peter's saying, look, it's not that you had no hope before. It's that you hoped in the wrong things. It's not that you didn't worship before. You were worshiping the wrong things. But now that you follow Jesus, you have new passions, a new heart, a new hope, and new eyes through which you see the world. And he says, look, not only does your, is your worship now holy, but your conduct needs to be holy. Your conduct needs to be holy. We see this in verse uh, 15. He says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your, what's the word there? Conduct. You see, the Christian with resilient hope is called to live a life of non-conformity. As God is holy, in the same sense, See, the Christian with resilient hope is, is called to a life of nonconformity. As God is holy and unique and set apart, there's a sense in which we're to be unique and set apart. We're to be holy. We used to imitate the world, but now we imitate God. We used to look like the world, but now we look in some sense like God. We display his goodness and beauty and purposes. As he is holy, we're to be holy. God is good, and so we're to be good. As well as God is without sin, we should be actively putting sin to death and be holy as he is holy. I know this idea of pursuing holiness is heavy. I know that it's heavy, but it's supposed to be because it's sobering. Look, pursuing holiness is another way of saying fighting sin. When we pursue holiness, that's what we're doing. We're also, in a very real sense, we're fighting sin. 
And if we remember what sin is, sin is basically, first and foremost, it's rebellion. It's an affront against the God of the universe. And it's not because he's mean and he's uptight, but it's because he's so holy and pure. And so our sin is a direct offense against his holy nature, against the God from whom the whole universe was made. But secondly, sin is also not against God. It's secondly also against our own selves. You see, when I tell my youngest not to run toward the oven, he like, like when he's running towards the oven and it's like already heated up and I go, no, Judson, no. He looks at me like, dude, what is your problem? And then he starts crying and he's upset. He's like a mixture of sadness and upset. And it, it's like I tell him no and I want to keep him away from that, not because I'm mean, but because I love him. You see, my kids, they don't have the wisdom yet to know what's safe for them and what's not. A fascinating verse we see from the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church about sexual uh, sin that has been spreading within the church. Uh, he's challenging them and he says, whoever sins, sins against his own body. That's fascinating. He says, whoever sins, sins against his own body. He's, he's driving home that point that not only is sin a betrayal against God, but it's also a betrayal against yourself. It's a betrayal against ourselves. This is what John Owen was, was getting at when he said, look, we need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You see, the idea is that God is the platinum standard and to be like him is the best that we can be. And so have you been changed by the gospel? If you really encountered the transforming grace of God in Jesus Christ in your life, have you encountered the hope of the gospel? If so, then your life should be changed. Your behavior, your life, your thoughts, your actions, your worldview, your entire outlook on the world should manifest that change that has happened in your heart and in your life. Now that leads us into our last and final point. I want us to drive home with this point, number three, that holiness displays our hope. A life of holiness puts on display the, our hope that we have in Jesus. You see, the life of holiness, it's a missional life. It's a missional, it has a missionary effect on those around us. Do you care about your kids, your parents, your coworkers, your neighbors, those of you who God has sovereignly placed around you uh, who don't know the hope of the gospel? who run the risk of spending an eternity without Jesus Christ, without true and everlasting life. If you have people in your life that you care about, and we all do, then you want to have a missional posture towards them, right? Like you want to be sharing the hope of the gospel. Well, few things share the hope of the gospel more than a life of holy living. If you want to reach those people, you need to have a life that is marked by holy living. 
Now, what is it that you think of when you think of holiness? Typically, we think of holiness, when we think of holiness, we think of like a list of do's and don'ts, right? Well, we got to do these things. We got to not do those things, right? But again, like that's, that's, a, that's a truncated view of holiness, right? Like here's some misconceptions of holiness. One misconception is that holiness is primarily about what you, you don't do, right? About what you don't do. First, it does mean to be set apart from the world, like the things of culture that are, are at odds with Jesus, all the things that in culture that are in rebellion uh, against to uh, our, our holy God. Uh, you know, like, don't do these. And, and so we tend to think of, of holiness as, as as like, well, don't do these things. Don't do these worldly things. Uh, if I don't do those things, then I'll be holy. But holiness isn't just about not doing these things in the world. It's also about being set apart for God's purposes. It's about doing what we, it's about what we don't do, but it's also about what we do. It's about how we are set apart from the world, but also set apart for God. It's about going to church, about giving to the poor. It's about raising our kids to walk in the way of the, the Lord. Uh, it's about all these holy acts that we live for the glory of God and for the good of those around us. There's also a misconception that holiness is primarily about the individual. Like being holy is about me and my life and my conduct. And that sort of comes from our westernized uh, way of thinking, our Americanized version of Christianity. Uh, where we start with the individual and then we work our way out. You see, but most people throughout the world and throughout history, their understanding of how things work actually started with the larger community and then worked out the implications for the individual. And so we see that our holiness affects ourselves, but our holiness also affects our family. It affects the common places that we live in, like our workplace or where we go for our recreation and for our hobbies and stuff like that. It, it, it affects our community and our, and, our, and our whole church, right? <clears throat> That's why if you're a member at King's Cross Church, you know in our membership covenant, like one of the things that, that, that we, we ask you to commit to is to actively seek to grow in a life of holiness because your life of holiness not only has an effect on your life and your family, but it has an effect on the, the church as a whole. You see, the, the misconception is that holiness is primarily about the, the individual, but in the scriptures we see that holiness has an impact on entire communities. In our last verse, verse 16, he tells us to be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You see, right there, he's appealing to Leviticus 19. He's appealing to Leviticus 19. And then in Leviticus 19, uh, God says, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then he starts to unpack uh, and quote all the, all the commandments, all the Ten Commandments throughout the rest of Leviticus 19, which is the pinnacle of God's law. Have you ever noticed, though, that the overwhelming fraction of the Ten Commandments actually have to do with community and relationships, right? Honor your parents. Don't, don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Uh, even when Jesus summed up the whole law, when somebody said, uh, you know, what is the most important thing that I need to do? Can you sum up the whole law of God for me? And God's, or, or Jesus said, uh, 
the greatest and first commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, and the second commandment is just like it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, a holiness, the law of God, God's purity, his goodness, his beauty. Holiness is about relationships with the community that God has placed around us. You see, the point of holy living is not to assuage God's anger, but for us to experience God's grace. It's to have more of him and to put his grace on display to the world. One of the most influential theologians of the early church in the first few centuries was this African bishop by the name of Augustine. And Augustine uh, penned this prayer once, and in this prayer, he wrote these famous words. He said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. I love that prayer, that our heart is restless, Lord, until we find our rest in you. I think it's pretty well known that most of the world is feeling pretty restless right about now. This has been a hard year for a lot of us. And it's going to become all the more restless and volatile and difficult as we move closer to uh, an election coming up here in a few months with everything that's been going on uh, already and all the unrest that's ha been happening uh, on and off in our streets and in our cities. Man, our nation's feeling restless. Our world is feeling restless. The church is feeling restless. But as Augustine wisely said, God is the one who made us. We find our sense of value and being and happiness and deep-seated joy only in Him. And so because He's the one who made us, when our hearts are restless, they can only find true rest and lasting rest in the God who made us the God who's after our joy. You see, Jesus is the only true holy one in the fullest sense of that word. He's the only true human who fully lived a whole and holy life, whoever walked this earth. The only un one who was undeserving of God's wrath and destruction, and yet he suffered in our place, so that we would not have to suffer destruction. And through his cross and resurrection, he died and he rose so that we could find that deep rest for our souls, so that we could find a resilient hope that can carry us through even the most trying and difficult of times, and that can shine as light in darkness so that more people might come to know that same grace and that same hope. Come to worship our Lord as God. Amen. Do you long for that? I long for that. Our hearts are restless, and so let's find our rest in God. Display a life of holiness so that others may find rest in Him as well. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. 
for meeting times and locations, or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.